0: Hi everybody, this is Raj and I'm Eddie and this is the Blood Cancer Talks podcast so this is a podcast that's exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies uh, where we bring in several content experts from different disease areas to talk about the latest advances in the field Today, we are doing an ASH recap of multiple myeloma and other plasma cell disorders. As we all know, uh, there were a lot of exciting abstracts in the multiple myeloma space at ASH 2022 in New Orleans recently. And we wanted to go over the 10 or so top uh, abstracts which are practice-changing or practice-informing from a clinical standpoint. And uh, we are lucky to have a guest, uh, Dr. Mani Mohyuddin, who is an assistant professor of medicine at the Huntsman Cancer Center at University of Utah. So Mani, welcome. Thank you, I'm so
1: glad to be here, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you, so we'll jump right in. So basically how we will do it is, um, I will go over the top 10 or so abstracts and I'll introduce the abstract and then we will um, ask Mani what he thinks about the clinical implications of the abstract and how can it potentially change our practice. So the first abstract we wanted to go over is Actually, it's two abstracts, which both of which focused on intensive treatment strategy in smoldering myeloma. Uh, there was the gem Caesar trial and the ASIN trial. So just for the audience to give them a little bit of a background about what these trials were, so gem Caesar trial was um, a trial that was done in Spain, where uh, it was a single arm uncontrolled trial in high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma, where patients got four cycles of KRD, or lenalidomide, dexamethasone, followed by autologous transplantation, followed by two more cycles of KRD consolidation, and then two years of Revlimid maintenance, so a fixed-duration intensive treatment for high-risk smoldering myeloma. And the SM trial was a U.S. trial primarily, which also included patients with high-risk smoldering myeloma, where patients got DARA-KRD for a total of two years. So again, a fixed duration treatment. The median follow-up of gem Caesar trial was actually long, was 5.5 years, uh, versus the Ascent trial had a median follow-up of only about two years, because it was um, done more recently. And the primary endpoint of gem Caesar trial was MRD negativity rate at four years um, and five years. And in ASH, they reported the sustained MRD negativity rate at four years on an intention to treat basis, which was twenty-three percent when checked by multiparameter flow cytometry at a sensitivity of ten power minus five. In ascent trial, the primary endpoint was stringent CR rate post treatment, and at the end of two years, the stringent CR rate was roughly in the ballpark of forty percent. Overall, we saw that there were some treatment emergent deaths. About seven of 90 patients, that is approximately 8% of patients, had um, died in the GEM-CESAR trial. And uh, in the asen trial, there have been three deaths without progression. So three out of 89 patients, I believe, so had died without progression secondary to infection. So with that background, so question for you, Mani, what are your thoughts regarding curative approach in high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma after seeing this data? And how do you think the future studies in this space should be designed to test these regimens against each other or these regimens against other strategies in high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma?
1: Absolutely. So thank you for that great summary. I think there are two really important lessons that I draw from this. So number one, again, we're going to sort of cross comparing trials and, and regimens, but it does seem... That patients with smoldering myeloma do not appear to, to to have higher response rates or deeper responses to the same therapies when used in myeloma, and you know we say that because the same regimen, you know, KRD and transplant was also used in the Forte trial, and again we don't have exactly comparable lengths of follow-up um, and time points of MRD measurement, but the if you you know just. In, in, broadly speaking, the response rates and MRD negativity rates are the same, if not higher in Forte. So number one, one of the fundamental um, you know assumptions that we had made when designing these trials is that smoldering myeloma, because it's a precursor state, is inherently more curable than myeloma. And I think that the results from both these studies seem to challenge that. And I was hoping that we would get some, that kind of candid Uh, disclosure from the authors that this response rates and MRD negativity rates were actually lower than expected. And I do think that you know if you were to, to ask them in a different setting, we probably would they they probably admit that the response rates and the MRD negativity rates we're seeing are lower than expected, and perhaps smoldering myeloma um, from a you know conceptual standpoint may not be more curable than myeloma, and if anything, if the disease is more indolent, it may even be less curable and less responsive to therapy. Um, I think that the 23% sustained MRD negativity rates on long-term follow-up of the gem Caesar trial is very, very telling, right? That's less than a quarter of patients whom you intended to cure, who you've actually cured. And um, it, I think that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% sure that that's definitely less than what they had hoped when they initially designed the study. I think that we, you know, I, I actually asked this question at the the FDA workshop and they actually, you know, um, uh, Dr. Mateos basically hinted at, you know, they were expecting more in the ballpark of 50% range. Again, I sort of have to like talk with her again, but it does seem that it's lesser than expected. So that's one big lesson. The other big lesson from these two uh, studies seems to be that um, there are people dying, right? And some of these people are probably, if not almost certainly dying from the side effects of the drugs we're giving them, right? A cardiovascular event or a stroke or um, an infection related death is probably related. And these people probably would not have died if they just had smoldering myeloma and they were not being treated. And I think that one of the key things to to note is that if you don't have a randomized study and you don't have a comparator arm who you're observing, who you're looking at other competing causes of mortality for, and you're sort of seeing how their disease course is. I think that you can miss a signal of mortality, and you can miss a signal of treatment-related death. And I think this lesson, unfortunately, we've seen this in myeloma single-arm studies as well, right? With the neroclax where you know the single-arm response rates were great, but then in a randomized setting, especially for people without 1114 translocation. More people died, so I think that this also is a humbling reminder of the importance of randomization. To look at a at a contemporary cohort with modern imaging to see how their outcomes are, and just you know, in parallel, assert in other causes of death. So I honestly was, I'm disappointed, right? Because I want this strategy to work, right? I think it's a great concept to study, but it sure seems that it's turning out to be a little less curable than we thought it would. And I'm actually disappointed about these results. I had expected more, but I think they're very profound and uh, they definitely should shape the way by which we think and design future trials.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And one thing I would like to point out in Jim Caesar trial is the four year sustained MRD negativity rate of about a quarter percent. Uh, that's by flow and ten power minus five. So imagine if this was adaptive and ten power minus six, that would may even be in single digits, the sustained MRD negativity rate. So that that's very profound. And second thing is, in the ascent trial, the null hypothesis was that the stringent CR rate would be around 65%, and the alternative hypothesis was 80%, and it turned out to be a ballpark of 40%. You know, We don't have all the confidence intervals yet, but it may be that the study did not meet its primary endpoint. We are, I'm looking forward to the manuscript. I think that would really help in digging into the toxicities and, and the efficacy of this approach, but um, completely agree. Absolutely.
1: Fully agree with you.
0: All right. We will go to the next abstract on... I-STOP multiple myeloma. So we will do quite a bit of discussion today on the I-STOP because we have a few uh, abstracts from them. So this was predicting the need for upfront bone marrow sampling in individuals with MGUS, a derivation of a multivariable prediction model using the prospective population-based I-STOP multiple myeloma cohort. So just for the audience, I-STOP multiple myeloma is a screening trial for MGUS that is currently running in in Iceland and it basically what the authors did was that they recruited uh, approximately 70 to 80,000 healthy asymptomatic people at Iceland and uh, subsequently they tested them for MGUS, and patients who were positive or I would say I should say that asymptomatic people who turned out to be positive for MGUS, they were then randomized into three cohorts one cohort was not contacted and that would serve as the control arm that is no screening for MGUS. the second cohort underwent guideline Directed follow-up, so the current consensus or the expert guidelines, and the third cohort had a more intensive follow-up with more imaging and bone marrow biopsies, etc. So although the primary results of the trial it will take a few years to get, but we have uh, we have gotten a lot of interesting secondary analysis from the trial already, given there is a wealth of data on baseline characteristics of these patients. So using the ISTOP multiple myeloma cohort, the authors tried to answer the question that are there any predictors that can accurately predict the likelihood of patients having a bone marrow plasma cell or MGUS patients having a bone marrow plasma cell of more than 10%. And 10% I think is an interesting cutoff because many of us in the clinic, when we see these patients, if if the bone marrow plasma cell is more than 10%, that would classify them as smoldering multiple myeloma. And given the risk stratification that we like to do in smoldering multiple myeloma, uh, we would want to do a bone marrow biopsy, if not all in in most of those patients, to look at where do they fall in the risk risk category. And uh, using several variables to derive and validate a risk prediction model, which had a C statistic of 0.77, and the model had excellent discrimination as well as calibration, so it was really impressive. And uh, I actually used it in my clinic last week when I saw a couple of patients with MGUS. So a question for you, Mani, does this score change your practice when you're seeing new patients with MGUS in the clinic, which I think it likely does. But I'm interested to know what will be your threshold to do bone marrow biopsy? For example, the percentage probability for patients with bone marrow plasma cell are more than 10%. What number will you use, you know, above which you will do bone marrow biopsy in everybody?
1: Absolutely. So, Excellent summary, Raj. I think it's important to sort of historically look at what we have been doing. So we've been using the data from the from the Mayo clinic, which had about 1271 patients, I think, where if people had low risk MGAS, meaning that they had IgG and it was an M protein of less than 1.5, um, it was only about 4.7% of the time in that cohort that you would actually find a bone marrow plasma cell percentage of more than 10%. All right. So that's the historical benchmark that we've sort of been using and you know the cutoff that we've sort of been using. Um, And it's important to know that that was not a a rigorous data set like this is, because for this data set, basically everybody with MGUS that was randomized to the intensive follow-up, regardless of, you know, other patient variables, et cetera, all of them got bone marrow biopsies, right? So we prospectively have looked at a cohort without physician bias of who gets a bone marrow and who doesn't. And we've looked prospectively and we've seen what their, Bone marrow plasma cell percentages are, and what predicts for a higher plasma cell percentage. So obviously, this is a very rigorous model, and I think um, probably um, you know five percent is what we were using previously, right? Because that was a four point seven percent Mayo Clinic cutoff. I think it sort of depends. I'm going to have a conversation with my patients. I do think that probably I'll I'll lean more, and this is my personal opinion and I'm happy to hear what you think, but I think probably I'll lean more in the ballpark of 10%. And it it might vary. It might vary for a younger patient who's going to have MGUS for a very long time and I might be more inclined to get their baseline. And it might be different for somebody with, you know, who's older, who I might even omit, even if it's more than 10%. But I think somewhere between 5% to 10% is that sweet spot. And I think it does allow for omission of bone marrow biopsies for more patients compared to the Mayo Clinic model. I think one of the key things to note is that light chain MGUS is excluded from this model, because I tried putting it in um, last week for a patient with light chain MGUS and it wasn't working. And then I, I looked back again at the slides and I was like, oh, they've excluded light chain MGUS. So that's one important thing. And then IgM MGUS is also excluded. Um, so those are two important caveats. But overall, uh, and then another important caveat is that it's a racially homogeneous population. So perhaps it might be that uh, I might be a little different for some other ethnic minorities, but overall, broadly speaking, this is immediately practice-changing. I taught it to the to the students in my clinic, and I I intend to use it fully for for all my patients with MGUS and actually have a conversation with them about you know what are the chances of you know of a bone marrow biopsy actually changing um, your diagnosis. So this is it's a fantastic study.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you uh, said the caveats very well. Another thing is the biclonal MGUS was also excluded. Um, And, you know, in elderly patients, uh, I agree with you, in younger patients, I will have a low threshold. But in elderly patients, I would probably have a very high threshold to do a bone marrow biopsy. You know, if if it's, unless it's like 30, 40% chances of more than 10%, I'll probably not do a bone marrow biopsy and follow them closely. But in younger patients, I completely agree. All right, so we'll move on to the next abstract, which is on transplant. So as we know, there are all, there has been a lot of debates in transplanted multiple myeloma last year with the determination trial, and uh, this is another small randomized control trial, but nevertheless another randomized control trial of transplant versus no transplant, or you can say early transplant versus delayed transplant. So this, uh, this is a long-term outcome of prospective randomized trial comparing revlimit dexamethasone continuous versus revlimit dexamethasone, followed by autologous transplantation with MEL 140, not MEL 200, and single-agent lenalidomide maintenance in older patients, so in patients at the age of 60 to 75 years old with newly diagnosed transplant-eligible multiple myeloma. So this trial has certain unique features. So first of all, MEL 140 was used and not MEL 200, which has been used in most of the other randomized control trial. The second thing is the induction regimen was Revlimid DEX, so it was not VRD. So this is clearly an inferior induction regimen for transplant-eligible patients currently. And uh, then the third is that uh, this was a relatively small randomized trial. And at median follow-up of roughly about six years, no significant difference in progression-free survival or overall survival was seen between the two arms of Revlimid dexamethasone continuous versus Revlimid dexamethasone plus Mel-140 transplant. So, uh, Mani, what are your key takeaways from this trial, and how does it impact your practice when you know, let's say, you're evaluating a patient in their early 70s, you know, who is who otherwise seems you know relatively fit to you you know, and comes to you, comes, comes to you and you start VRD or data VRD induction, how does this trial change or inform your practice?
1: Yeah, so again, great summary. I think one of the important things, um, just to the audience, sort of, as a recap for the audience, you know, we've had several large randomized studies in younger patient populations, right, with an upper age limit of about 65, where uh, VRD has been compared to, uh, to transplant. So basically, VRD, transplant, and then, you know, len maintenance compared to VRD, um, Followed just by you know de-escalation and then land maintenance and in those studies there's been a PFS advantage but not an OS advantage all right and that's a, a younger uh, patient population and at eight about seven to eight years of follow-up you know in two different studies uh, no OS advantage yet so I was already extrapolating that data um, and sort of you know thinking about it conceptually for my older patients where you know if somebody's diagnosed in their you know 70s and I do whatever approach I do. I, I do think about how, you know, even for a younger patient population at seven, eight years of follow up, there was no OS difference. So it already had sort of decreased the likelihood in my mind that for a standard risk patient in their 70s with all of the therapies that we have today and the newer therapies we're gonna have when they eventually progress, that an upfront transplant is gonna, you know, affect overall survival. Like I was already sort of thinking it probably would not make my, you know, people in their 70s live longer if I if I put them through a transplant, if they had standard risk. That's what that was my conceptual framework before I saw the results of this trial. Then I see the results of this trial and there there are many important takeaways. So this is a comparison a comparison against Lendex. If you were to compare this against Dara Lendex, it is very likely that um, you know, Dara would do even better, right? And Mel 140 would definitely not win against Deralendex or even you know, Velcade Revlimid Dex with you know, with VRD Light like we do for older patients. So that is a very important thing that you know, a lot has changed since when this trial first started enrolling, and it is very likely that in the era of the therapies we use today and therapies we're going to have upon progression, that you know, it's very you know, unlikely that a transplant will help people live longer. The other thing is, how much of a difference is the dose of melphalan making? And this is actually a really important point, is that in all those other studies, was mel200. A lot of us, for older patients, we do mel140. The institution where I trained at, if you were above 70, you always got mel140. And I think this is a very, um, it's, it's a very thought-provoking and, and probably practice-changing study that if you are to do a transplant for somebody in their 70s, somebody is exceptionally motivated, they prefer a first P, a, a, a long first PFS. I do think that you should um, definitely probably consider giving them MEL-200 because this is a rigorous evaluation of MEL-140. It's one of the most rigorous evaluations of MEL-140 we have, and MEL-140 failed to beat Revlimid dexamethasone. The third thing to consider is, yes, it is true that a third of patients who were assigned to the transplant arm did not undergo a transplant, all right? But I think that you have to take that caveat with a grain of salt because if you start looking just at the per-protocol population, then you're losing the benefits of randomization, right? Then you're comparing a highly selected fit subset, and it's hard to sort of generalize those those results at a population level. I still think that for a highly fit, highly motivated person who really deeply values a first PFS, um, I think if you you can consider doing a transplant, but across the board for standard risk myeloma for people in their seventies, I do think this study and the other two that I discussed earlier should. So you should seriously, uh, you know, think quite a few times before before indiscriminately transplanting transplanting those patients. And if you are to transplant, do Mel 200. I still think that for somebody with renal failure on dialysis, I probably would still do Mel 140 because you know there's some older data about how Mel 200 can be very toxic for those patients. If I am to do a transplant, I'll probably do dose reduced for those patients. But by and large, um, I think you know, no Mel 140 and think a lot about doing a transplant as, as people get older. Um, so those are my takeaways for this study.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, after the determination trial, um, I know, you know, your um, opinion on the on the results of that. And I still have kind of pushed transplant in, in patients up to the age of 80 who were otherwise fit. But this trial was actually an eye opener to me, I must say. I mean, I, I really, uh, you know, looking at the data, I mean, it could not be Revlimit-DEX. That was... I I thought it was disappointing and surprising, you know, because even though Mel 140 I thought was slightly inferior to Mel 200. If I had not seen the results, I would have predicted that it would be an easy win for Bell 140, but it wasn't. So, especially now that we have data and if patients don't want to undergo, you know, transplantation, you know, in patients over the age of 70, I definitely, I would not push much in those patients and, yeah, just, just do data you know, and maybe collect stem cells for, for future in case, you know, if they are in their early 70s, for example, and they may still relapse at a reasonable w- before their 80s.
1: And just a plug for the excellent meta-analysis that you did in which you pooled high-risk patients across these transplant trials and you demonstrated that at least for high-risk patients, there is much more value to doing a transplant because their outcomes are really poor with a non-transplant-based approach. So um, and, and it's a pretty important study that 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 I that I use to consent my patients. So for high-risk myeloma, there's a lot more onus on sort of keeping the first remission as long as possible and using all the best tools that that you absolutely have. And I think this still doesn't change my approach to high-risk patients and i think for high risk for a fit high-risk patient i probably would still prefer to do a transplant upfront.
0: yeah uh, thanks for um highlighting the study but yes i mean in high-risk patients or patients who did not let's say did not achieve a good response to the induction regimen those patients are slightly different and you know in those you would probably still want to do a transplant upfront. All right, so we'll go on to the next abstract on telcoetamab, which is the new kid on the block in myeloma. Telcoetamab is a GPRC5D, it's a G-protein coupled receptor, family C, group five, member D. So GPRC5D and CD3 targeting bi-specific antibody in patients with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. And results from the phase 1, 2 results, or the monumental 1, were presented. And there was also simultaneous publication in New England Journal of Medicine. And in this uh, abstract that was presented, you know, they presented data on 143 patients who got 0.4 milligram once weekly dosing and 145 patients with 0.8 milligram every other week dosing, you know, and a total of almost about 300 patients. And uh, it's important to note that there were patients, a lot of patients at prior BCMA exposure, but most of that was Belantamab mephidotein or rep, you know, and uh, followed by BCMA CAR, followed by BCMA bispecific. So the least number of patients that had exposure to prior BCMA bispecific, most of them had exposure to BCMA, antibody drug conjugate, or Blenrep. And they found that the VGPR or better rate is about 60%, and CR rate of 30%. So it's significant, you know, considering what we have seen in the past in, in myeloma. For example, with daratumumab, we had seen a single agent response rate, and that single agent PR or better, partial response of better, of the ballpark of 30%. And here we are seeing a CR rate, or a complete response Response of 30%, and the vGPRR better rate of about 60%, and the responses were very quick. The median time to response was 1.2 months. The median progression-free survival was roughly in the ballpark of seven to eight months, and there were comparable responses in triple-class refractory and pentadrug refractory patients. Uh, side effect-wise, I mean, they did see cytopenias, you know, similar to what we had seen with the BCMA bispecific antibodies as well, but there were some unique toxicities like uh, dysgeusia or altered taste and, and skin-related toxicities. So. Mani, you know, after looking at the data, uh, what do you think distinguishes telcoetamab from the BCMA bispecific antibodies that we have, you know, so many right now? And, you know, how excited are you to see an accelerated approval for telcoetamab sometime in 2023?
1: So great summary, Raj. I think the, the most important thing is that this is a new target and it shows activity in people who've progressed on prior BCMA therapy. So that is something I am very excited about and I do look forward to the Uh, the FDA accelerated approval for this drug as it will provide a new option for people that have refractory disease that has progressed from prior BCMA therapy. The important thing that I sort of worry about and I draw conclusions from for this study, number one, is that it's a very, very large non-randomized study. So you have, you know, 200 plus patients for just for a dose finding and a safety and preliminary efficacy study, I think it is a missed opportunity for randomization that if you can do such a large study, you probably could have randomized some of those patients and gotten more meaningful answers. So that is one really important conclusion. The other conclusion is that even though the risk of infection appears to be lower than than what is seen with BCMA bispecifics, I think some of those other side effects are going to be a problem as this gets used in earlier lines of therapies. So for example, there's our taste changes, there are skin adverse effects, there are nail adverse effects, there's weight loss. I think these things will become particularly relevant when we use this in a transplant ineligible elderly patient population, which is ultimately where you know the confirmatory trials they're probably gonna try try to run. So I think that is one thing I do worry about. Um that in a, if you were to rigorously evaluate quality of life and compare it with some of those other upfront regimens that we use, it might be that um, you might have worse quality of life. And then another thing is we desperately need to um, to incorporate time limited approaches to buy specific therapies. And I think every trial that we run without those approaches is another missed opportunity. Um, and I think those are the three things that worry, that, that worry me, but overall from an activity standpoint, and the fact that it still works in people with prior BCMA uh, exposure is, is definitely very reassuring.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think activity in act from activity standpoint, it may be the efficacy may be even similar to BCMA by specifics. If you were to test them in a similar population, and I think which one is going to come up, you know, up in the treatment line will probably depend on quality of life and toxicity. And, you know, if the skin and nail toxicities, you know, turn out to impair quality of life and lead to a decrease in quality of life of patients, that would definitely be a problem in earlier lines. And, you know, similar to some of the other drugs, you know, how they have faced in myeloma. So, yeah, more to to come on, on, on that. All right. So, next, we will discuss an abstract on AL amyloidosis. So, this is a use of maldi or matrix assisted laser desorption ionization time of flight mass spectrometry so maldi mass spectrometry Free light chain assessment for the diagnosis and monitoring of systemic immunoglobulin light chain amyloidosis. So this was a study that I found really intriguing. Uh, in AL amyloidosis, one of the challenges that we often face in the clinic, in even in the era of DARA-CYBO-D, is that many patients, you know, get achieve a da- CR, complete remission to DARA-CYBO-D, with involved free light chain of less than two milligrams per deciliter, or the DFLC, your difference between the involved and uninvolved light chain of less than one milligram per deciliter. But they still do not achieve an organ response and still, you know, I had many patients who did not achieve an organ response and some of them unfortunately died on follow-up. And uh, you know the question always is that do they still have some a small amount of monoclonal light chain even in that small amount of overall light chain and there is no test to kind of tell us apart whether you know there is a monoclonal light chain or whether the remaining light chain is all polyclonal and we can do M R D in the bone marrow but M R D in bone marrow the data on that in amyloidosis is not as clear as the data in multiple myeloma regarding organ response and prognosis so in this in this study what uh, uh, folks at the National Amyloidosis Center in the UK tried to do was they systematically looked at about 500 patients, which is a very large number of patients in AL amyloidosis, and uh, they looked at at six month time point, they looked at the free light chain mass spectrometry using a new test that was developed by Binding Site. This test is not commercially available yet. And they used this free light chain mass spectrometry to classify patients with complete remission into two groups. So CR and free light chain mass spectrometry positive, and CR and free light chain mass spectrometry negative. And they also looked at the free light chain mass spectrometry within different subgroups. For example, within patients who had a DFLC of less than one, which currently we think it's, it's a very deep response, and it's a, we all target to achieve a DFLC of less than one, hopefully at the six-month time point. And surprisingly, they found that, uh, first of all, they found that a significant proportion of patients are free light chain, mass spectrometry positive. So even though we feel really good when patients achieve a CR or have a DFLC of less than one, about 70% of those patients still have a small amount of monoclonal light chain hiding, even within that small amount of total light chain. So that was, you know, very, very disappointing. And, and that explains why so many of these patients, they keep on having ongoing organ damage and don't achieve a good organ response. And second, they found that even among patients with CR, or among patients who have a DFLC of less than one, free light chain mass spectrometry was able to discriminate survival, and here we are not talking about organ response or progression-free survival, but overall survival, so that was very powerful, that even among patients with CR or DFLC less than one, patients who have free light chain mass spectrometry positive have worse survival. So currently, you know, this test is not available commercially, hopefully we will have this test available commercially in the future uh, but if if i had this test available commercially uh, then i would certainly use it at the 6 month time point in patients who are in a cr the question is we don't know whether by flipping them from mass spectrometry positive to mass spectrometry negative whether we are going to improve the survival but you know let's say if we have a safe drug for example if they are T1114 positive, and if I can use a couple of months of an to flip them into mass spectrometry negative, you know, uh, I think that would be a good thing to test. And, you know, it it would be probably be safe. But, you know, using something like an autologous transplant would, of course, be very risky, given that has a transplant-related mortality in AL amyloidosis. So the clinical implications are not clear yet, but it seems to be a very promising candidate for MRD assessment. And I think it's definitely more promising than bone marrow MRD in amyloidosis. Eddie or Mani, do you guys have any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I I wanted to ask you, Raj, you know, it seems like a very, very small light chain clone that, that, that we're picking up or that they're picking up here. Do you really think that that's responsible for the ongoing organ toxicity or are these people that have sort of sustained organ damage from their initial clone before it was picked up and, and you're just not able to reverse the damage when you get the, the clone up?
0: I think that's a great question, and I don't know. I mean, it it could be that, you know, it was uh, patients who are FLC mass-spec positive, maybe they had a high tumor burden at at baseline. By tumor burden, I mean light chain burden at baseline, and maybe they had a worse organ damage. Uh, It's, I think, it would be very hard to know. The fact that, you know, even in patients, all of them were in a level playing field when the free light-chain mass spectrometry was done, you know, they were CR or DFLC less than one. I think it's likely ongoing organ damage, but I think that hypothesis needs to be tested, like those patients, you know, then seeing that if you flip them to FLC MS negative, do their outcomes change, or at least do they achieve a deeper organ response? I think those trials need to be done. Uh, but I think, you know, given with bone marrow MRD, we have clearly seen that in many amyloid patients who are bone marrow MRD positive, they they can clearly go ahead and achieve an organ response. And that's why I'm not too excited about bone marrow MRD nail amyloid, but definitely I'm more excited about this test because it was able to discriminate survival. But that's a a great point.
2: Yeah, and the other thing that you raised um, about, you know, potentially trying to treat someone who might have a, a still detectable light chain to me is the difference between, you know, something being predict- prognostic and predictive, and, and that that needs to be tested in in some yeah. sort of ideally randomized setting to know, yeah. not just whether you can find out more information, but whether that information can actually help guide treatment.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it will be although you know, with al doses, it gets harder and harder when you go into a subset to do randomized trial, but definitely, you know, large like collaborative groups need to come together to do those trials. Um, so we'll go ahead to the next abstract. So this is another randomized trials including older regimens, but I found this trial very fascinating. So it was VMP or Velcade Melphalan Prednisone versus RD or Revlimid Dexamethasone. And VMP was nine cycles, Revlimid Dexamethasone was continuous. So VMP versus RD randomized controlled trial in transplant ineligible real-life multiple myeloma patients. It was the phase four real multiple myeloma trial. And just to give audience a background, um, in Europe, you know, VMP was proven to be superior to MP or melphalan prednisone, so that's how VMP became the standard of care for transplant ineligible newly diagnosed myeloma. Similarly, RD or Revlimid dexamethasone continuous was proven superior to MPT or Revlimid dexamethasone for 18 cycles. And that's how Revlimid dexamethasone continuous became the standard of care. So this trial kind of tested these two regimens head-to-head as to which is the winner in transplant-ineligible, newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. And uh, they found that overall the trial had a null result. You know, VMP was not superior to Revlimid dexamethasone. However, they had a pre-planned subgroup analysis in high-risk patients. And in high-risk patients, they found that there was a clear subgroup effect based on cytogenetics and the P value for subgroup interaction was 0.036, with the hazard ratio being 0.21 in favor of VMP. And I think this trial gives an important reminder that, you know, going back to the basics, that we should not abandon probably proteasome inhibitors from induction treatment backbone in high-risk patients. Proteasome inhibitors are probably very important. Now, whether this is true now even in there of anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies, we don't know yet. But I think it was an important trial showing that you know, at least VMP, you know, was superior to RD in high-risk cytogenetics, in patients with high-risk cytogenetics, and that was both signal in PFS and overall survival. And I think the same group is going to do a follow-up trial of Dara VMP versus Dara RD, which would be more contemporary, you know, uh, and, and more applicable to our current treatment paradigm. Yeah. So, Mani, yeah, question for you. So what do you think are the key lessons from this trial, and what are your key takeaways from this trial? Yeah, so
1: it's a, it's a great summary, Raj. I, I don't want to draw too many conclusions. And so first of all, a lot of the historical landscape, as you pointed out, has changed, right? So at the time the study was conceived, right, there were two standards of care for this patient population, this elderly transplant and right? It was Velcade, Melphalan, Prednisone, based on the Vista trial, or it was continuous Lendex based on the first trial. But there wasn't any direct comparison between the two. So it's an excellent concept from that standpoint. But today it is hard to make conclusions from this study. And I oh, I even, I'm hesitant to make too many conclusions even for the high risk subset, because it was such a small number of patients, right? There were about 17 patients with high risk in Velcade, and Prednisone, and about 19 patients in the Revlimid, Dexamethasone arm, right? And then the other key thing to note is what exactly is the difference, right? So there's, there's basically, um, Velcade melphalan prednisone, which is given for nine cycles, right? So it is a finite treatment. So that is one difference. You're comparing finite treatment to continuous lendex, all right? So that's one thing. Um, Another difference is that, you know, you're getting melphalan in in one arm and you're not getting that in the other arm. The other thing is the difference of the proteasome inhibitor, right? So there's a difference of a PI, there's a difference of the alkylator and then there's a difference of duration of therapy and then there's such there's such small numbers of high risk so i really don't know if this necessarily informs my practice too much and i do think that for elderly even for elderly patients with high risk myeloma who i'm not transplanting i really don't know that vrd is better than DERA, Revlimid, dexamethasone. And I think that, um, I I really don't know, and I think that there are people who have strong opinions about a PI for, for those patient populations, but I really don't know, because if you look at the high risk subset in the Maya study, um, you know, it did seem that they benefited from the addition of DARA2-MAP. So I sort of agree with you, but I'm just very cautious because it is, it just lacks a lot of relevance and there's so many variables that are different between the two groups. So that is sort of my interpretation of this study.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I mean, in the era of DARA, I think very hard to say whether, you know, once you add DARA to the mix, will these results hold up? I mean, the only thing, you know, that was, that. I found a little bit convincing was there is strong, like, biological possibility also that why PIs would be, you know, more effective in high-risk, and uh, with the data, you know, rest of the data that we have in the space, you know, before DARA, that PIs are important in high-risk, and this for the pre-planned subgroup analysis, but I agree with you that the numbers were small, and, you know, we don't know whether it's the Velcade versus it's the Melphalon, you know, which is making the difference, that's also another thing, although it was not high-dose Melphalon, it was standard-dose Melphalon, but I think it would be good to see the comparison of DARA-VMP versus DARA-RD.
1: Yeah, and I do hope that they do quality of life analysis for that study. It would have been so interesting to look at quality of life because I do think that even though the PFS outcomes overall were similar, I'm I'm pretty sure in some ways the quality of life for Lendex might have been better than Melphalan, Prednisone, Thalidomide. Um, sorry, than then VMP. And so it's hard to know. I do wish, I do hope that for the next study they have rigorous quality of life assessments and they compare it between between the two cohorts.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, one thing I wanted to uh, applaud the authors that they did stratify based on IMWG frailty score, which is done in so few patients, so so few trials in myeloma, as you know. So that was stratified. So that that was great. You know, we need more frailty stratified uh, randomized trial results in myeloma. Yeah. Alright, so the next trial is teclistamab in combination with subcutaneous daratumumab and lalidomide in patients with multiple myeloma results from a one cohort of Majestic 2, a Phase 1B multi-cohort study. So, although this was a small study, but I found the results important, especially because there are so many trials currently which are combining teclistamab with daratumumab in earlier lines of treatment uh, that we will... You know, inevitably in the next two to three years we will be faced with the results of those trials and we'll probably be, you know, using at least in some proportion of patients and maybe first line, maybe second line, I'm not sure, but, you know, we will definitely be either accruing in those trials or using that in the real world. And it's important to understand the safety profile, you know, especially when you're combining teclistamab and daratumumab together. So this was a small study of 32 patients and with a median of two prior lines of therapy, so kind of early relapse patients. And... There was There is not a lot, you know, because it's only 32 patients, but they did see a CR in 55%. So that was significant, you know, CR rate of more than 50% with any regimen, given that, you know, this was small number, So you have to take with a grain of salt, but it is significantly high. And VGPR rate was 90%, and they were quick responses. However, they did see two fatal adverse effects from infection. So 2 by 32, so it turns out to be around 6.25%, you know, fatal adverse events. And uh, definitely, you know, uh, needs a careful evaluation in randomized control trial, also they saw CMV reactivations as well. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the manuscript of this to dig into the other infectious toxicities, given that we have seen so many infections just with single-agent BCMA bispecific antibodies, and when combining it with that I'm really concerned about infections, especially when using in the earlier lines of treatment. So, Mani, are you excited about this combination in earlier lines of treatment, and you know, what concerns do you have regarding the safety you know, or efficacy?
1: Yeah. So the short answer to your question is I am not excited about this combination in early lines of therapy, especially when we study it in patients that are frail. From a conceptual standpoint, I think the biggest unanswered questions in transplant ineligible elderly patients with myeloma is how do we improve quality of life while, you know, maintaining a certain level of efficacy? How do we help our patients live longer and live better um, with, you know, a certain minimum activity. And I think the DERA, LENDEX data from Maya provides an excellent platform to sort of build build upon. So building, so I don't think that improving PFS is the biggest unanswered question in my 75-year-old patient with myeloma, who, you know, is expected to reasonably get four to five years with with. With, with Maya, I think it's how do I improve safety and how do I improve quality of life? And I don't think that tech data len, and I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think that tech data len is the answer. Because even in a highly selected phase one population of 32 really fit patients who got enrolled on this phase one dose finding combo, like there were still two deaths, right? And I think that if you were to translate this onto a larger, more representative frail population that typically will get enrolled in a phase 3 study you might have more of an adverse safety signal and i think that um that is that is a concern for me right i think we're all very enthusiastic about using more of these agents but i think it i don't know if the elderly transplant ineligible patient is the best fit for regimens like this. Um, I'm glad to see that this, this regimen is active. It was active, I think, if, if I remember correctly, even in some patients who had previously gotten tumor map. So, from that standpoint, conceptually, yes, for younger patients with relapse disease, you know, definitely sort of something to consider. Um, but I am very worried about using this in older, frailer populations. And I applaud some other groups. Like the SWOG Group, for example, or you know the Canadian group that are now trying to deescalate from Dera Lendex. So maintaining efficacy, improving quality of life, less is more approaches. I really do think that for our standard risk patients with you know who 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 transplant ineligible, those are the important questions. So now I'm not very excited. and I am a little worried about the safety signal seen with this regimen.
0: Yeah the safety signal is definitely concerning. The only thing I would say though, uh, the only silver light that I see with this combination is that maybe, you know, and I don't know whether those trials will be designed by the company, but maybe it will give us an opportunity when you have three really active drugs to do maybe a really short duration or a fixed duration treatment and then you know one and done kind of treatment maybe six six cycles or something you know we we don't know how durable the responses would be but given what we have seen with teclistamab that you know um, or in the BCMA bispecific trials that patients who got taken off the trial because of infection you know and they are off the drug for many many months usually they remain they have a durable response so this may give an opportunity for designing those trials but definitely the safety has to be assessed in randomized control trial you know compared against like revlimit dex which you, as you said nicely that is kind of gives us a good platform to compare against
1: right so you know you raise a good point raj but that's unfortunately not the trial we're getting so majestic seven which is basically a comparison of Len lendex against uh dara teclistamab len um is basically a thousand patient plus study and the regimen is given is there are definite is is given is given indefinitely so that is a bit of a problem right so i know you the three of us can conceptually hypothesize about time-limited therapies, but unfortunately, the pharmaceutical companies are probably not going to fund a lot of those studies, at least not the large registrational studies. Um, And I think this is a really good opening for cooperative groups to study less-is-more approaches while still using these novel therapeutics.
0: Agreed. Alright, so then we'll go again into I-STOP multiple myeloma, and there were three abstracts that I will quickly highlight, because I think all these three are very relevant to our day-to-day clinical practice. So the first abstract was an association between MGUS and autoimmune disease. And again, um, as Manu had said before, that this was an unselected group of patients. They they, uh, did screen the population, and the patients that they found MGUS not based on any clinician bias, but based on population-based screening. So these results are very incredible. And, you know, they found that uh, MGUS, when, de- when detected by population screening, was not associated with autoimmune disease, which was actually surprising, you know, to... A clinicians like us, you know, for example, I see a lot of patients in my clinic who have autoimmune disease and they get referred to me for MGUS. So I always tend to think that maybe there is an association between MGUS and autoimmune disease, but there was not when it was detected by population screening. So very important results. The second was isolated hypercalcemia in patients with MGUS. And I have had that a few, few patients in the past couple of years when patients of MGUS are follow up they develop isolated hypercalcemia, and some patients, you know, panic, and even, you know, I panicked once that, you know, maybe he's developing myeloma, but patient was asymptomatic. So it's important to know that when these patients develop isolated hypercalcemia, it's still secondary hyperparathyroidism is is, is is the most common cause uh, and not transformation into multiple myeloma. Uh, the next most common cause is a non-myeloma malignancy. So again, important to know that isolated hypercalcemia in patients with MGUS obviously needs to be worked up, but you know, in most of the time it's not going to be transformation from MGUS to myeloma. And then the third abstract, which was also very surprising to me, that MGUS is not associated with CKD or chronic kidney disease. Again, we all see tons of patients in our clinic who have CKD and got re- gets referred to us for MGUS or you know suspicion for multiple myeloma or other plasma cell dyscrasias because monoclonal gammopathy testing is specifically done in those patients, uh, but actually it was not, and in fact light chain MGUS was even less likely to have CKD. So um, I think these all these three abstracts were really eye-opening to me and tells us the importance of population-based screening and the bias that we can see sometime in uh, in sets, you know in which um, clinicians order a test based on you know based on some reason. So based on this data, um, Mani, what would be your message to rheumatologists, you know, endocrinologists, nephrologists, and even PCPs, for example, regarding testing for monoclonal gammopathy in their clinic?
1: Yeah. So such a such a great summary, Raj. I think this. Um, these studies are probably the most impactful studies uh, in the plasma cell disorder field from ASH 2022 because they affect such a broad range of of patient populations and and even healthy people. Um, And I think that, you know, this is something we've already started doing. We've been spreading the word to rheumatologists and PCPs that there isn't any strong correlation between autoimmune diseases and MGUS. And I think it's important for them to know like the patient aspect of this and and, and what we see, right? Because we see a lot of patient anxiety, like people think that they have cancer for the few weeks until they see us and all of that can be prevented just by sort of, you know, not ordering Um, unless there's a clearly defined syndrome that's sort of related to a plasma cell disorder. So the message is very, very profound. I think the calcium thing is also very, very interesting. Um, And I think, again, as you pointed out, you shouldn't just jump to assuming that it's a plasma cell dyscrasia in those settings, and it probably is something else. The autoimmune and the the CKD part, uh, CKD being whether or not that's associated with MGUS, was a very interesting study. Because obviously, you and I have seen a lot of monoclonal gammopathy of renal significance and et cetera, situations where kidney injury has been clearly related to a plasma cell clone. I think what's informative is, is the message that we can give to a nephrologist is that broadly speaking at a population level, light chain MGUS is very, or, or MGUS is very unlikely to be the cause for, for, for a kidney dysfunction. And testing is the yield of testing is low you absolutely should do it if things don't make sense but from a population level you know the most common reasons you know hypertension ckd older age if there's nothing else that's suspicious it's probably safe to forego additional testing and prevent the unnecessary anxiety and cost but i do think it's a little harder for me to wrap my head around that and clearly give a message to nephrologist like the way i can give a message to rheumatologists right um and i still think that in some you know, specific situations like somebody with CKD who's now sort of going for a kidney transplant, right? I think that, I mean, we can we can debate about this. That's a separate debate, but those patients you probably, you know, or to do a thorough workup and those patients you probably still will end up getting a workup done for plasma cell disorders. But the message to rheumatologists and to PCP is very, very clear. And I really, really commend the the ISTOP study for, for asking this question in such a nice, clean fashion. It builds upon what they've already shown uh, about osteoporosis and MGUS that there's no correlation.
0: Yeah, the nephrology part is definitely tough because you know we don't want to miss an MGRS because it can be potentially treatable. And, um, but, but I agree with you that if there isn't clearly alternative cause like diabetes, hypertension, then we can possibly forego as long as you know the others, uh, as long as the clinical context makes sense
2: i think um just to add to that i think the renal question is very tricky but my question i wanted to ask you manny is do you think we should um restrict who can order an s uh, in the hospital and, and say you have to actually you know consult him before you can order an s or something i know that will probably just create more work but essentially the question is do you think we should restrict who can order an SPEP?
1: that is such a such a loaded question eddie i think there's so many important dimensions to that answer i think the short question the short answer to that is no because I do think that there's a counter argument to this as well. We pick up a lot of MGUS where people would have been better off not knowing and you know, caused a lot of anxiety for the rest of their lives. But there are also situations where it's not picked up and patients actually have a legitimate plasma cell dyscrasia. Um, and the thing is, is that if we, the more restrictions we sort of put on, on this, I think we, well, one, we add more work for ourselves. But secondly, I think that you, you don't want to discourage people too much because there are a lot of legitimate, you know disorders that are related to plasma cells, and we kind of want to encourage our, our our primary care colleagues and our other subspecialists to recognize them and pick them pick them up. So I think um, it's important for them to know our perspective. It's important for them to know what happens to their patients when they refer to us, right? Because there is a certain validation, right? If you order an sPep and it comes back mildly abnormal. Like, you know, you'll be like, oh, I'm, I'm glad I ordered this because there is some mild abnormality, like it reinforces them. I think it's our job to sort of educate them that, you know, these mild abnormalities are not clinically significant. They lead to a lot of patient anxiety. And in many situations, patients would, be, would have been better off never, ever having gotten tested for this. Uh, but short answer to your question, despite all of this study is no, that I do think that they should be able to order these tests.
0: So the next abstract is um, analysis of transplant eligible patients who receive frontline data-based quadruplet, so Dara VRD or Dara KRD, a newly diagnosed transplant-eligible multiple myeloma, a combined analysis of Griffin and the master s- trials. So this was a very, I-, I thought it was a very smart analysis done in which they combined uh, data from Griffin trial and master trial, because both had fairly similar, you know, treatment, had a dara based quadruplet followed by transplant, followed by some consolidation. The difference being in master trial, there was subsequently de-escalation based on MRD negativity, whereas in Griffin trial, everybody got, either are Revlimid versus Revlimid alone, but that was indefinite treatment. And what the authors looked at in this combined analysis was how did the patients with no high risk cytogenetic abnormalities, those with only one high risk abnormality, and those with two or more or the ultra high risk patients too. And if you look at the PFS curves. The PFS curves for those with standard risk and those who have only one high-risk abnormality is completely superimposable, at least up to three to four years of follow-up. So we still don't have a you know, very long follow-up, so it's possible that those curves may separate down the line, but at least up until now, they're almost superimposable. However, patients who have two or more high-risk abnormalities, they have a worse PFS with a two-year PFS of roughly in the ballpark of 50 to 60% and that's the same with you know either DARA-KRD or DARA-VRD so um money basically based on this study you know in the era of quadruplet induction and transplant and relevant maintenance do you think we sh- should we even consider those with only one high risk abnormality as high risk anymore or are they behaving almost like standard risk i mean the follow-up was short but but what is your take on this data
1: so such a good question and i don't know what the right answer is because um, you know, the data is limited and there's some limitations um, of the studies that, that that you presented, both being single arm and even though they have you know, their definition of sort of high risk is similar. I do think that um, a lot, you know, with novel therapy, with incorporation of transplant and with daratumumab, I do think having a single high risk abnormality, you know, you can probably have similar outcomes as if you didn't have high-risk abnormalities with novel quads and upfront use of transplant. I think the important unanswered questions for me, the more interesting sort of comparison for these ultra high-risk patients is not between Master and Griffin, but also but, but between Master and the, the UK Optimum trial, right? The UK Optimum trial, as opposed to Master, um, basically ex, you know, exclusively recruited people with Either two or more high-risk abnormalities, you know, high-risk cytogenetics, et cetera, or circulating plasma cell leukemia. And this was a much more intense and more sustained approach, right? Where you know, people got data VRD plus cyclophosphamide, then a transplant then a year and a half of consolidation, and then you know, additional dare like um I think it was like data VR maintenance. So very intensive prolonged therapy. And again, since we are doing cross-trial comparisons in that in that group of of, of patients at 30 months, uh the PFS was about 77%, which is much better than all historical cohorts. So I really don't know. And I, I think that this is an important question for our field that for these ultra high risk patients, um you know, is continuous therapy with the same agents the answer? or is um, you know is, is finite therapy and then switching to something else if they progress the answer? And I think we don't know. But broadly speaking, Raj, with the with the limitations that we've sort of highlighted, I do agree with you that, you know, quad therapy and transplant, you know, people with one high, just one high risk abnormality do seem to to do fairly well, relatively speaking.
0: Yeah, and that was very reassuring, you know, because if they have, if somebody is only T414, and nowadays with quad therapy, transplant, and maintenance, you can reassure them that overall their outcome is still pretty good. All right. So, you know, having discussed all these abstracts, there was another, um, you know, you had a really nice poster on surrogacy between progression-free survival and overall survival in myeloma. And there was it was published, I think, almost simultaneously that day in British Journal of Hematology. Um, can you tell us a little bit of the key takeaways and top-line results of, of your paper of the surrogacy between PFS and overall survival in multiple myeloma?
1: Absolutely. So thank you for highlighting that. So this represents the most rigorous, largest, and most up-to-date surrogacy analysis done to date in, in multiple myeloma. So we pooled all clinical trials from, from January 2005 to December 2019 that reported hazard that – were, that were phase three – that were reported hazard ratios for PFS and hazard ratios for OS and were powered for either PFS or OS. And we sort of looked at the the correlations between PFS and OS. And and basically we found, um, and then, so that was one important question. The other important question was how is PFS reported, right? Like do studies ever differentiate between whether a, a progression is biochemical or whether a progression is clinical? And I think this is really, really important because they mean very different things and you want to know like you know how your drug is really working and whether it's averting you know one or two or, or, or one or one or both of, of, of these sort of progressions. So we found uh, that only one study in our cohort actually described whether progression events were biochemical or clinical so that is easily fixable, right Like we can do a better job sort of characterizing progression events so that we can understand the benefits of our treatment better. Now we found 41 studies where correlation could be assessed uh, between PFS and OS. And generally speaking, if you combine newly diagnosed and relapsed refractory uh, trials with the the R-square, which tells us how much of the variation in the OS is because of the variation in PFS was fairly low. So it was only 39. And then the R-value, which was the correlation was about 0.6. So that's a pretty weak correlation, right? Now, there were some outliers, and even if you remove those those, those outliers, the the correlation still is pretty weak. When you separate for newly diagnosed and relapsed refractory, it appears that the correlation for newly diagnosed myeloma is weaker. So the R-value for that was 0.65, and it's a little stronger for relapsed refractory myeloma, where the R value was 0.76. Now, this has really important, co- in, you know, this. There's a lot of important philosophical arguments that come from this study. So, first of all, I recognize, we all recognize that the current model has worked. People with patients with myeloma are living longer, they are living better, and there have been many drugs that have come to market. So, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that. I think we're at a crossroads now. We're getting so many good drugs, right? The question, the philosophical question is now, do we lower the bar and make it even more easier for those drugs to get in the market or because outcomes are so good, we need to keep the bar high and make sure that new drugs that enter the market do actually work and help our patients live longer and live better. I think we're at this philosophical crossroads and the, the issue that best captures this is whether MRD should be, whether efforts should be done to establish MRD as a surrogate for PFS. Our study shows that you know pfs is not a good surrogate for os so if you start linking mrd to a surrogate that's already weak i think that comes up with a lot of issues i think mrd is in many ways worse than pfs as a as a primary endpoint because you know it doesn't capture death like the way it doesn't capture other issues like the way pfs capture pfpf PF, like the way pfs captures so yes it allows for expedited approval but it brings a whole range of other issues if you start using MRD as the sole means of goals of treatment. So I think that is one really important issue that our study sort of highlights. And I think that the other thing to sort of highlight is we're constantly told that for newly diagnosed myeloma, you have to give all of your treatment upfront because there's so much attrition and people are not gonna get the next line of treatment. I think that this analysis sort of empirically invalidates that argument. Because if that was true, if people were not making it to the next line of treatment and for whatever reason, we're not getting the next line of treatment, your PFS would have, co- your PFS1 would have correlated very strongly with OS for newly diagnosed. So that was not shown, all right? So I think that in, in, in uh, low resource settings, for example, um, I think that you can make a case that you can probably still get really good mileage with less intense approaches and you know good follow-up therapies. And I think even for other publicly funded systems, this is a very important like question, right? Like, can you get the same mileage by just sequencing things out? And our study sort of adds some weight to that argument. Um, so lots of really important philosophical issues that this study brings up, um, and, and happy to chat more about it at some point in the future.
2: Mani, can I ask, you talk about the R values and, and what's a weak correlation versus a strong correlation. Most people might not have a sense of what a good R value actually is so so um could you tell us a bit about you know what what that number means and what number you'd want to Uh, be happy um, that pfs is a good surrogate for os
1: absolutely so there have been some guidelines from some from some other groups like the german group has published these guidelines prior systematic reviews have also published the benchmarks of what a good r value should be for for surrogacy so basically if your r value is 0.7 or less, it is considered a weak correlation. If it's between 0.7 to 0.85, it is considered a medium correlation. And if it is 0.85 or higher, that is considered a high correlation. One would be like a perfect correlation, all right? So with that information, right, less than 0.7 being, being weak, just I'll, I'll sort of repeat the results really quickly, that we found out overall that for, for, for both newly diagnosed and relapse refractory, the R-value was 0.62. And if you look just for relapsed, if you look just for relapsed refractory it's 0.76, all right? So it's a little better for relapsed refractory. And if you look, you know, just a newly diagnosed, at 0.65. So overall, um, the correlation is weak. Maybe it's a little better, but it's still not really good for, for relapsed refractory myeloma. So that's just a quick summary of the results.
0: That's a great summary, Ivani. One question I had, you said one trial did specify that what percentage of PFS events were clinical versus biochemical. Do you remember what percentage was clinical, like crab relapse? In that that is
1: a really good question, and I actually don't remember off the top of my head.
0: No, that's okay. Um, I, I mean, the only thing I I was thinking that if that number is very high, like 70, 80%, then you could make a point that PFS by itself is a clinically meaningful endpoint, right? Uh, but I, I think, you know, just because we did a retrospective cohort study, you know, at Cleveland Clinic during my fellowship, and in real world, that number was roughly about 50 to 60%. So I think of clinical and rest biochemical, from what I remember, so in, in clinical trial, probably that would be lower. maybe. I would think 30 to 40 percent, maybe, uh, but you know, clinical relapse certainly you would want to avoid because I think that you know is by itself a clinically meaningful. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is definitely it's creating a lot of challenges in newly diagnosed myeloma now because you know it takes a long time to get OS. So you know, uh, like bringing new drugs to the market, as you said, we are at the philosophical crossroads. Uh, and one point I also wanted to clarify regarding MRD. So I think. That's one of the problems with MRD is, as you say, that if somebody dies, you know, then the MRD is not doesn't capture that. But I think that's where the intention to treat principle needs to be followed in MRD, which you know, Dr. Costa and, and uh, colleagues have specified that if somebody dies, that has to be penalized. Like those patients have to be considered as MRD positive. You know, the the treatment has to be penalized for that. Of course, that doesn't, you know. Uh, solve all the problems, but at least solve one of the problems of toxicity, if there's toxicity related death, those patients should be considered as MRD positive in case MRD wasn't done in those patients. Absolutely. Um, But yeah, these are definitely, you know, a lot to uh, digest from this study, but really, really great study.
1: Yeah, thanks for highlighting it.
0: So thanks, uh, Mani, for taking your time. And uh, I know that you're on vacation right now and during the holidays, so taking the time to discuss the abstracts with us. I'm sure our audience will really love it. And uh, we look forward to have you again sometime to talk about myeloma.
1: The pleasure was absolutely mine. Thanks for having me, Raj and Eddie.